The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. There was a Jewish doctor named Viktor Frankl who survived the death camps in World War II, and he wrote a book about his experience and what he observed in there. The book's title is Man's Search for Meaning. And in his time in the death camps, he observed how people responded very differently to such harrowing and horrible circumstances based on where they put their meaning. He found that people who had fixed their meaning on something that they had made themselves, like their career or their social standing in their peer group, that was pretty much immediately swept away when they were in the death camps and they they did not do well in there because of that. His observation was that those who had self-made meanings collapsed psychologically. Many of them gave up, passed away quickly in the death camps. Others collapsed morally and actually took the side of the torturers and then tortured their fellow Jewish people. But he found the people who did the best was those who did not have a self-made meaning, but had a fixed meaning that transcended anything in this life, anything in this world. Here's some of the observations he wrote about. One of the people wrote about a depth and vigor of religious belief beyond this world. One woman said, in my former life, I was spoiled and did not take spirituality seriously. But he found that those who survived the death camps well had a fixed meaning transcending this life and this world, which is what gave them humanity in this life, cruel as it sometimes may be. In today's passage, we see something similar. Ultimately, love existing beyond this world and hope transcending the cruelties that may come in this life is what enables us to walk through even suffering that we didn't plan and didn't desire with purpose. So here's what we see in today's passage. Paul is also in prison and he's suffering. But Paul does not believe his meaning has failed. Because he did not create his meaning. It was fixed upon him by Jesus Christ who sent him. Further, Paul does not believe his purpose is over, even if his life is over. Because he believes God is doing something transcendent. And he believes his readers, the Ephesian churches and the Gentile churches, are a picture of the promise that God will one day keep. So what transcendent reality did Paul have that enabled him to suffer with meaning, with joy, and with purpose that transcended even cruelties of this life? And that's the title of today's sermon, Making Known God's Grace. That was Paul's purpose and meaning, and he says it's ours as well. So if you're using a pew Bible, if you'll turn to page 1160, 1160 in the pew Bible, that's Ephesians Three, we're going to walk through the first 13 verses together. The title is Making Known God's Grace. And to make it easy to follow, I think today's text actually only has two sections. The first six verses are about the majestic mystery of God's grace. That's what Paul was called to. Then the last section, verses 7 through 13, are about the wonderful wisdom of God of which we are a picture as the church. 
All right, so first half, the majestic mystery, that's the mission. The second half, the wonderful wisdom of which we are a picture, okay? So we're going to keep going now, if you'll have your Bible open, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. I want you to notice something, especially if you have your Bible open. Paul's first few words are, for this reason. And then Paul does what probably someone you know in your life does. Then Paul goes on a digression. And it takes him a long time to finish saying what he started saying. Would you look down at verse 14? Do you see those three words again? For this reason? That's how long it takes Paul to get back to his original point. And don't raise your hand, but we all know somebody like that. We all know somebody like that. They start saying something, then, you know, 20 minutes later, they return to what they're originally going to say. And that's what Paul does here. So for this reason, based on God's incredible grace in Christ, I'm going to pray for you. But before I pray for you, I have 13 verses telling you why I'm living the way I'm living and how it matters for you. Okay. So here's a digression, but it's an important one. 13 verses of why Paul is living the way he's living and why that matters for us. So now back to verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I want you to notice right away that Paul says that he's in prison and that he's suffering in prison, but he's doing that for a purpose and it's because of God's grace for their sake. So verse 1, I'm here for Christ Jesus, but on behalf of you. He's going to say this again in verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, notice, for you. So God's grace given to me for you. I want you to notice a principle that Paul's teaching us that is a principle for us all. God gives grace to us so that it will go through us. Okay, God gives grace to us so that it will go through us, so that it will be for the benefit of those that God is still reaching and pursuing. Paul, in fact, says that his stewardship is that exactly. The word stewardship is the Greek word okonomia. It's where we get our word like a manager of a household or a, a dispensation or of affairs. Oh, still there? Okay. <laughs> So Paul's management is to take what God has given to him and to put it through him. Let's just make a couple quick applications then right now. First, we ought to let God's grace go through us to someone else. And second, have you ever considered that that person that God has brought into your life is God's grace to you? So if you stop and think, Can't you remember someone that God has used to put in your life at just the right moment to soften you to his grace, to encourage you at a time of discouragement? That is God's grace to you through someone else. Receive it and be it by his grace. But now let's go back to verse 1 because I want you to see the counterintuitive form of God's grace. Paul says, I'm a steward of God's grace. It's grace to me. It's grace for you. And that means that I'm in prison. That's interesting. Do you have a category like that in your head? This is God's grace for me is that I'm suffering right now. This is God's grace for you that I'm suffering right now. I think maybe in our cultural moment today, we're not really used to having a category of God's grace taking the form of personal suffering. In fact, we have a couple of phrases in our culture that show we maybe don't expect that at all. Um, Here are two of them. 
I'm learning them because I have children. I didn't, I didn't know what these meant either. They're, they're four-letter acronyms, F-O-M-O, F-O-B-O. Maybe some of you know what they mean. The first one, fear of missing out. The idea of FOMO is that life could be better if I was somewhere else. And then the next one, F-O-B-O, the idea of FOBO, is that fear of better options. There must be something better than what I currently have on the menu tonight. Both of those indicate something interesting about our cultural moment. That our cultural assumption is that life ought to be known with me having control and comfort. Life ought to be known with me having control and comfort. But think for a second. Control and comfort are the enemy to the very two things God intends to produce in us. Humility and faith. Control and comfort have no room for humility because I ought to be in control. And comfort has no room for faith because it doesn't lead me to trust outside of myself. So, brother and sister, I want you to see what Paul says in verse 13. Because he bookends this whole digression with these two thoughts. Verse 1 was, I'm a prisoner. But look now in verse 13, please. Look down in verse 13. This is Paul's description of what God has called for him. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul is not upset about the suffering. He doesn't fear he's missing out. He doesn't fear there are better options. He trusts this is God's grace in my life, and it's God's grace for you. The surpassing riches of Jesus have made the things of this world strangely dim for Paul. Do you have a category like that? Yes, God has called me in a hard season, but it's for these other people. It's for their good, and so I embrace it. In 1732, Johann Leonard Dober and David Nitschmann were young Moravian brethren from Hernhut, Germany. And they believed that God had called them to take the gospel to African slaves, but they were disallowed from going and being supported to go overseas to share the gospel in the Isles of St. Thomas and St. Croix. And so they sold themselves into slavery so that they could be put on a slave ship and brought into indentured servitude and thereby have the opportunity to share the gospel to those slaves. When they were put on the slave ship at the shore, here's what they yelled back to their families. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Paul is saying something quite similar here. God's grace to me is that I'm a prisoner. I'm suffering for your sake. Now, most of us won't be in a situation quite like that, but many of us will be called by God into a season of suffering so that his grace that has come to us will go through us to someone else. Imagine someone who is married to a spouse who is an unbeliever and yet suffers positively as the unwritten word of God to that spouse week after week, embracing even hardship with joy. God's grace to me is intended to go through me. Many of you are employees who work for employers who are really not worthy of you working well. Some of you have aging parents who do not treat you honorably, and yet you honor them. Others of you just recognize that as citizens, if we're going to seek the welfare of Raleigh, we may have to do so for governance that does not share the right values, and yet we seek their welfare because God's grace to us ought to go through us. This passage reminds us that to be stewards of God's grace 
means that we might experience suffering ourselves that shows that God is pursuing others through us in the way that His grace pursued us first. Maybe you know the story of Martin Burnham and his wife, Gracia. There's three children. They went to be missionaries in the Philippines in the 1990s. They were missionaries there for 17 years. And then in 2001, they were captured by a Muslim extremist group and held hostage. They were held hostage for about a year. At the end of that year, the Philippine military had a rescue plan. And unfortunately, during the rescue plan, Martin was was killed at age 42. But in the final year of his life, and you should Google Gracia's name after church today because she has great videos where she talks about what it was like to be in captivity and to try to love her captors. And here's something that Martin told her at the beginning of their captivity. When they were kidnapped, Martin said to his wife, Honey, the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness. And so in our captivity, we are going to speak the grace of God through Christ even to our captors. So Martin and his wife, Gracia, made it a point that they would bless those who were persecuting them in the words of Matthew 5. Their blessings became difficult and discomforting to their captors. And their captors debated who would have to lock Martin up at night because they were uncomfortable with him blessing them while they were trying to torture him. Martin insisted to them that God loved even his captors because Jesus forgave even his crucifiers. See, Ephesians 3, verse 13, look at it again. Don't lose heart over what I am suffering because God suffered for me is the implication. So if I have a God who gave up his life for me, surely... He might call me to give up my life for you because God loves you that much. I want to encourage you this morning. Did you know that God's grace never wastes suffering? We can steward any situation for his glory. See, Paul is saying, I'm in prison. That wasn't what I planned to be doing, but it is what God had for me. What good came out of that? Can I tell you one thing? We have the letter of Ephesians. Because God benched him in prison. And surely in your life as well, God is not wasting things that seem an impediment to your plans. They're his good purpose. So here we see Paul participating in a mission that gives him purpose despite suffering. But now he says in verses 4 through 6 that that's a privilege that allows him to share the wonderful news of which his readers and you and I today Partaken. This is verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 3. Paul continues, when you read this, when you read this letter that God allowed him to write through suffering, when you read chapter 1 and 2, you can perceive, as we continue in verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul knew the mystery of Christ, and now God has given him the opportunity To herald it, verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The New Testament apostles and prophets were referred to in chapter 2, verse 20. Don't miss the phrase, as it has. It's very important because it means the mystery was revealed in the past, but not in the same way as it's been revealed now. Not to the same extent of receptivity and disclosure. That's very important.
want you to think that Christ was not known until Paul. He was surely known before Paul, but now he's known with a specific nuance of disclosure that wasn't yet understood. And that's verse six. Look now in verse six. The aspect of the mystery that is now disclosed in a new way is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I've shared before, unlike the way we use the word mystery today, mystery is not a problem to be solved, much less a whodunit to be figured out. It is instead truth previously obscured or hidden that is now made clear by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the key phrase that's used here is the fact that this mystery, that that is the eternal decree of God that he referred to in chapter 1, is now being fulfilled in God's people. If you have Ephesians open, you can flip back to chapter 1. Let me show you something in verse 9 and 10, and then we'll quickly return to chapter 3. If you flip back to chapter 1, look just in verse 9 and 10. That majestic opening sentence, Paul alluded to this broad cosmic reality of the mystery. Look now in verse 9 of chapter 1. Making known to us the mystery of his will. This is God's will. His huge decree for all things according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Notice God's huge decree happens in Christ. So God's big plan is from beginning to end tied to Christ. Now verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven And things on earth. Now, if Jesus is going to unite everything in him, he's doing that now in his church. Now go back to chapter 3 so that you see what he's saying happens in verse 6. Now chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery, the aspect in which Jesus is fulfilling now is he's giving something to us Gentiles that previously we did not expect. There's a prefix in Greek. It's the prefix sigma upsilon su. And it's actually before all of the words. But sadly, the English translation misses that. So I want to say it to you so that you catch it every time. Here's what the text is saying in the original in verse 6. Gentiles are together, that's the prefix, together heirs. Together members, together partners is a better word than partakers. So that's the thing that nobody saw coming, that the Gentiles would be heirs in the same way the Jewish people are. They would be members in the same way the Jewish people are. They would be partners in the same way the Jewish people were. Now you have to imagine how amazing that is. Because if you've read the Old Testament, and this is a 30,000 foot view of it, but if you've read the Old Testament, it's fairly disappointing. It begins with God calling Abraham and things look okay. And then he brings Israel out of Egypt and already there's some problems. And then they demand a king when they don't need a king. And you can tell there's going to be more problems. And then the king's progressively get worse and then the prophets can't turn the people around half of the people or more go into exile at the end of the old testament god's glory leaves the temple and you're like i guess it failed except that god had a plan that he hadn't revealed until jesus came 
that all the promises that he had made would be fulfilled by his son. And in his son, people who you didn't think had access are fellow together heirs. Now, I want you to think about this, friend, brother, sister, so that when you read the Old Testament, it comes alive to you. See, the serpent crusher God promised Adam, he crushed Satan in the wilderness and destroyed him at the cross. The seed that Abraham was told that would bring nations together is the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has now become ours. The greater prophet than Moses is God in the flesh. The tabernacle's final sacrifice is Christ, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. David's final king who will rule with righteousness is the king who first wore a crown of thorns. The one wiser than Solomon is here. And in the new covenant, we are heirs of all those promises in the same way they were originally made. I find that breathtaking. Because now when I read the Old Testament, I say, yeah, that's, that's my king. And these are my promises. I'm an heir with them through faith in him. It's an incredible promise he makes. That promise is then the purpose of his life. And we are the demonstration of it. So now we're already on the second half of the sermon. The first half was the mission Paul had. It's to make known the mystery of Christ. But now the second half is the wonderful wisdom of God of which we are evidence. And that's verses 7 through 13. Now verse 7 in Ephesians chapter 3. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Here's what I've been called to share. The good news that God would make people right through his son, fellow heirs of promises long preceding us. But that good news, God enables. Look at the end of verse 7. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. God's call always includes God's power. The mission he sends us to always includes his might to accomplish it. Paul makes that very clear in verse 8. To me, this grace and power was given, though I am the very least of all the saints. Brother and sister, I want to encourage you this morning. If you've ever felt like you are not up to what God has called you to, we're not, but he is. His mighty power will fulfill what he has called us to accomplish. You can trust him, even though we're the least deserving. He is the most gracious of gods. Verse 8 continues to the incredible thing God called him to, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We notice Paul's heart. This is so good for us to see. We've seen it now several times. The gospel being proclaimed to anyone. We saw last week that Jesus preached to those who were near and those who were far off. Look now in verse 9. See how Paul similarly proclaimed to all. Verse 9 says, And to bring to light for everyone an indiscriminate universal vocalization of the good news of Christ. The verse continues, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? I really appreciate the phrase hidden for ages. Look down in verse 11. It says this was the eternal 
purpose. Do you know why I love that? Because like I just said, when you read through the Old Testament, it kind of looks like God's plan failed and the church is like a backup fire alarm deal. But actually, that is not true at all. God's plan A was to culminate in the church. His original intent was to make fellow heirs out of those who seem far off and hopeless. God's plan did not fail at all. He has fulfilled it and unfolded it perfectly. God's perfect plan is revealed. So Augustine is right when he tells us that in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. And in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. Such is the case in the end of verse 9. And now notice verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The word manifold there is a powerful word in a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The same word is used to describe Joseph's multicolored coat. So we could think of it this way. This is God's multicolored wisdom, his wisdom with resplendent colors of his incredible, incomprehensible plan. But the part that struck me the most is the end of verse 10. Look at the audience to whom the church displays God's multicolored wisdom. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. On Tuesday, I'm blessed to study the sermon text with a few guys from church, and we work through it together. And I said them to them Tuesday afternoon, I do not know why this is the audience. So many other times in the Bible, the audience is the unbelieving world. Or think of uh, Goliath and the Philistines, or Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That is not the audience here. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, you probably know the verse very well. We read, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in heaven. It's the exact same phrase. So who is the audience that the church displays God's wisdom to? The angelic realm, particularly demonic opposition. Isn't that shocking? The existence of the church is for something even bigger than the human race. It's for the glory of God in cosmic realms, particularly to demonic opposers because they had thought they won. Now, I love sports, and my favorite sport is basketball. And so this is a great time in my life because it's the NBA playoffs. (laughs) And in the playoffs, my favorite thing that happens is when the home team has their home crowd worked up into a frenzy and they're confident they're going to win. It's game five, game seven, a pivotal game. The crowd is going nuts. And this actually just happened last week. And then the road team comes in and the road team has another opinion about how it's going to turn out. The home team is so excited. They're going into the fourth quarter up by 10. The home crowd is wild. It's loud. But then the opposing road team starts getting hot and drawing even. And you can hear the crowd getting more silent. And then at some point, the road team, the away team takes a lead. And then you can hear a pin drop. And then when there's 30 seconds left in the game, when the road, the away team pulls ahead by seven, the home crowd makes their way to the exits. (laughs) Because it's over. 
Now that's the image I have in my mind. Here is the demonic realm resisting God, opposing him throughout the Old Testament, and then God's very son comes and they crucify him and they're thinking, we got it! And then he rises and he makes a church of multicolored wisdom and then they make their way to the exits. See, brother and sister, I want you to remind you of something that Paul knew that you need to know in the depth of your daily experience. There is one author who writes this story and he's already written the ending. He knows who wins and he's declared that at the cross. And whatever's going on in your day-to-day suffering is not the end of the story. The demons know it's over. This passage shows us a pattern of God's incredible grace that is accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. So look in verse 11. This is according to the eternal purpose in Christ our Lord. Not a backup plan, a secured final outcome. This is why verse 12 is true. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Christian, there's no reason for us to live in fear. There's no reason for us to live in anxiety. We actually ought to live with boldness and confidence. We know the outcome. We've been pursued by grace. That grace ought to go through us to others. Yes, with boldness. Even if suffering. And we ought to have confidence that we can enter the throne of grace and find mercy and help in our time of need because the blood of Christ has given us such access. Ephesians 4 tells us of the great high priest we have in heaven who is able to sympathize with us because he's been tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. And verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. That is why verse 13 tells us this, Church, I ask you not to lose heart, even over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. I want to give some applied conclusions here at the end. I'm going to give them in two sets of three, okay? Uh, Even though my notes were two, I'm still going to go with the theme of three again. So two sets of three. First three principles and then three patterns. So if you're a note taker, I'll try to make it easy for you. First three principles and then three patterns. First, the three principles, and here's principle number one. The grace of God ought to increasingly humble us over our lifetime. In today's passage, Paul said he's the least of saints in verse 8. Many years before that, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, Paul said he's the least of apostles. I want you to track chronologically what Paul has said about himself. 1 Corinthians, I'm the least of apostles. Ephesians, I'm the least of the saints. That's all Christians. And then later, the last letters of his life, 1 Timothy, he said, I'm the chief of all sinners. See, many of us over our lifetime, our pride increases. In Paul's lifetime, his pride regressed and his humility increased. See, the more you understand the grace of God, the more you understand what Christ has done for you, the more when you think of who you are, you think, I I only am positively what I am by the grace of God. So what does your life trend look like? 
Are you on a similar trajectory? No, no, seriously, I'm the least of a I'm the least of this. I'm the worst of sinners. All right, the second principle is we ought to know our mission. Paul says he knows why he's alive. So whether or not he's in prison doesn't change much for him. If you, like if you had a sentence for why you still exist, what's the answer? Let me suggest one to you off of today's passage. Here's a suggestion for why you and I ought to wake up in the morning. To know Christ and to make Christ known. Paul says that's what it is for me. To know Christ and to make Christ known. I know what my mission is. So I know why I wake up. I know why I work. I know what I do in my family. I know what I do in my neighborhood. I know what I do in every aspect of my life. I want to know Christ and make Christ known. Third principle. God's grace is always working towards glory, even if it goes through suffering. God's grace is always working towards glory, even if it goes through suffering. He said that in verse 13. I'm suffering, but it's for your glory. See, God's grace is always working towards glory. Now, those were the three principles. Now, I'll close with three patterns to identify. Three patterns to identify. Here's the first pattern I want you to identify. Jesus is the key to understanding the manifold wisdom of God and the mystery of his will. Jesus is the key. Have you ever lost your key to your car, (laughs) to your house? Super frustrating. I did that one time. I was banging outside on the door. The kids were dancing around. They had the music really loud. I was just sitting out there, just banging, banging on the door. No key. Can't get in. Can't do anything. The key is what helps you understand everything good that God intends for you. It helps you to access it and apprehend it. The key to the multicolored wisdom of God and the manifold mystery of his will is to know Jesus Christ. Do you have that key? Do you know where life's going? Do you know how it got there? Do you know where you fit this morning? Maybe you just need to trust in Jesus for the first time and then understand where you are. Come to him. Because if you struggle with your suffering, here's what I want you to know. Jesus willfully chose to enter and eternally erase our suffering by bearing it on the cross because he loves us. You can go to someone who suffered for you so that your suffering can be erased. All right, the second pattern. This is an implication of the text, but it's a pattern that's important. The first was Jesus is the key. Second pattern, needless division is the work of the flesh, and I'm using my words carefully, and the devil, according to this passage. Didn't you see in the passage? Who's the audience that God is uniting people that you never thought could be united? The demonic powers, which means if we needlessly divide, it's a work of the flesh and of the devil. Let me read a quotation for you from Max Turner. Here's what he wrote. Paul, a Jew, devoted his life to bringing Gentiles the gospel and brought it, though any risk, to foster unity with the Jewish church. That's why his bonds were glory. And for Paul, the final outcome, it is no exaggeration to say Paul died a martyr for the cause of Christian reunion. Here's what Turner then says to us. 
There's a deep challenge here for our Protestant churches today who so easily split and redivide again over issues that we are convinced are the truth, often without realizing that in doing so, we are compromising the central truth of the gospel that reconciles and restores all peoples to unity in Christ. We are not showing the multicolored wisdom of God if we rip one color from the coat and run over to the corner with it. The whole thing shows God's multicolored wisdom. And the third and final pattern. The author made the pivot of the story, the cross and the resurrection. The author made the pivot of the story, the cross and the resurrection. Now Paul, throughout Ephesians, has been using in Christ language. He's been saying, Christ took everything bad that I had, and he gives me everything good that I don't deserve. But that means that the pattern of Christ I would expect normally would be the pattern of my own life. Death before resurrection. Disappointment before redemption. Discouragement and suffering before glory. I want to remind you that the pattern of history and the pattern of your life has been intentionally written by the author. And he unfolds it one chapter at a time by his grace in Christ and his church. And we individually should not lose heart in the discouraging chapters of the story. We should remember the story's arc when we remember the story's middle. Our Lord died, but our Lord rose. Let us remember the accomplishment that he has secured for us. Let's close together in prayer this morning. God, by your empowering grace, help us not to lose heart even if we are in difficult chapters of your book. Help us to remember that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Even suffering which is for the glory of God and for the good of those that you've put in our life. Thank you, Lord, that Paul was in prison so that we could have the book of Ephesians and others. Thank you, Lord, that many Christians have suffered in their own home, in their workplace, and they've done so joyfully because they say, this is God's grace through me. God pursued me when I was hostile, and now I'll pursue others even if they're hostile. Perhaps someone this morning, you're pursuing them right now, knocking on their heart. And Lord, help them to grasp Jesus as the key. Jesus who entered our suffering willfully, even though he didn't have to, and embraced it by bearing it on the cross so that he could eternally remove it. Lord, thank you for Christ. Let your love be understood by us better as we read scripture, seeing that you have made us together heirs, together partakers, and together members of his body. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.